Go ahead and get your Bible in hand. I'm going to ask you to open the book of Psalms in just a moment. But I've got to tell you something that actually gets the message going. Our uh, granddaughter, she's uh, just entered her teenage years. And like uh, teenage girls, uh, there is such a, somehow the speed of speech increases as soon as you turn teenager. And uh, the, the, the talkativeness, especially of girls. That's an intended mock. In fact, it has its own cuteness to it, but it became a problem when she had recurrent slips of tongue in which she said things that were really just funny and, and two or three things that were just very, very embarrassing. Unwitting, it, it gets out and she just, oh, you know, oops, you know, and she has her hands over her face, just feels so embarrassed. And... Uh, We've, I won't even give you a sample of those because they, well, a couple of them border on the indecent, though it doesn't get all the way there, but it had to do with word slips and uh, double meanings that could be drawn from something the kid never intended and so forth. But she uh, was with her mom after one of these things happened, and her mom, who's uh, one of our two daughters, of course, said, uh, said you know, you're really going to have to, you're going to have to, be more careful, and you need, you need to think about what you're saying. And she was being very respectful to her mom and said, you know, I just I want to do that. what you say. A couple of days later, she came back and she said to her mom, she says, you know, mom, she said, I've thought a lot about this, and I'm, I want you to know that I want to become a thinking person. And she was very serious and respectful. She said, I'm going to become a thinking person and I'm, I'm going to start saying something and then I'm going to think about it after I say it. <laughs> <laughs> and her uh, daughter said to her, honey, I think it's the other way around, you know. So it was a classic case of the very thing she'd been doing. <laughs> but uh, the message I have for you today is something that uh, has been said, and I want us to think about it. And it has been said first in a broad and sweeping way in the book of Psalms in one verse I'm going to ask you to turn to with me. 119th Psalm, which is the longest chapter in the Bible. It has 176 verses. In every verse of the 119th Psalm, there is a synonym for the word of God used there, sometimes the word, your word. It will say that. It's in this text, it says your law, statutes, your judgments. And that idea of judgments is judgment as an instrument of deliverance, the way the judges of Israel. When we think about God's judgments, this is not just a matter of God running around with a sledgehammer. This is a matter of God making ways of being freed from or deliverance from things that would entrap the way that the ancient judges of Israel did, the way that when justice is dealt, people go free. At least somebody does. And the instance of this text sets us forward this morning. Psalm 119, verse 165. Verse 165. And like few chapters in the Bible, so you may have to turn a couple pages to get there if you were at the beginning of the psalm. Because it, as I said, is a very long chapter. And the word in this chapter in verse 165 is the one that uh, I mentioned a moment ago. It's the word law, for it's talking about the word of God. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. The words are here on the screen. Read them aloud with me, 
And read it loudly, would you, right where you are, and let's fill the house with the sound of the Word of God. Reading. feels so good to not say it myself and to listen to you saying it. That was great. Nudge the person next to you and say, you, you, maybe you ought to preach sometime. Go on, tell them. <laughs> great peace. The word shalom, as most of you have probably heard sometime or another, the word peace in Hebrew, which would have been used here, of course, is a word that spans the spectrum of every part of our lives. It is not just peace in a political sense internationally, as beautiful as that would be if such a thing were to take place. Uh, not just peace in the internal sense of our own comfort zones being uh, in, in a good position, but the, the, it's the word for health. It's the word that relates really to everything that has to do with wholeness and completeness. And it says great completeness will be the portion and I'm going to move into the areas of how we relate to people. How influence flows out of the sort of person we let God's word help us to become. How many people there are, I'm not suggesting there's any necessarily in the room, but how many people there are that think in terms of that if you do what the Bible says you'll become a re religious person and a religious person, how many people will say, well, I'm, I'm not religious. And uh, they have, if you were to ask them to define what that means, it usually is some kind of rigidity, an inflexibility, a judgmentalism. It has to do with some kind of a, a piety that seems out of touch with realism in the society around you. The wholeness of life that the Lord offers to us does have boundary lines because it guards us from the things that make life unfruitful and unproductive. But the wholeness is broad in its scope and when it's truly lived out in the Lord's way, especially relationally, the way we relate to people around us in every way, all the way from the way that we communicate, the way we think and feel. I'm gonna conclude in about 20, 25 minutes and I'm gonna have told you a story by that time of how an attitude I didn't even realize how destructive it was in myself that I had, knowing full well better, I knew the Bible. I was, was, I'd been in the ministry for about 10 years when, the, when this, uh, not that long, uh, I'd been in, in very involved in Christian life for about six or seven years, but I technically at that point had not actually entered the ministry yet because it starts back right at the time Anna and I were married, and I'll tell the story in a bit, but the point is, that I knew better, but I was very, very guilty of something that was possibly, and there's no way of diagnosing it precisely, but when you hear it, I'm done with a story, you'll say, yeah, probably entered in somewhere. It's hard to figure out how the chemistry of things in the invisible realm of our relationships and what happens to people we would want to influence in very positive ways. Not just to help them know the love of God and come to Christ, but to show a friendship that begets friendship in response. Show a generosity that begets generosity in response. Shows a neighborliness. How many of us have had, I suppose most of us one time or another, a neighbor that was horribly frustrating and seemed an impossible uh, circumstance to deal with because of unreasonableness on their part or behavior or whatever the antagonism may have been. 
We can respond in ways that block potential influence. And as we step into the new year, this message really is brought with the hope that for every person in the room, it will do something at the level where your being encounters the truth of the book, that it integrates in a pragmatic way that results in your becoming a person of broader influence. That is what will make the way for any witness you have to bear. So many times people think of witnesses, grab a flag and wave it, put the Bible in somebody's face, quote scripture, make mildly incriminating remarks about things you disapprove of, and uh, those things come through with such counterproductivity. And the Lord is not calling us to be passive or indifference toward things that are offensive and impure, uh, unrighteous and destructive to people. He's not saying those things make no difference and be passive about it. But he's saying the way that you're going to be most active is by relating in ways that he has taught us in his word. I want to talk about a promise that's in your lap. Would you say those words? A promise in your lap. Say it, please. A promise in your lap. Now, really, this message is about prophesying your future. And I've used that title and the primary statement of what it's about is a promise that's in our lap. And I'm going to elaborate that in a minute, then tell the story. But the prophesying of your future is not an arrogant suggestion, as though we can concoct something and say, I will dictate my destiny. I think one of the most ridiculous statements you will hear all the time, and you hear it a great deal in sports reports. I'm very interested in athletics coming up and coming toward the end of the pro season. The playoffs are in motion football as you come into the uh, finish of the climaxing games of the, Hollywood, of the uh, college season uh, with the BCS championships and the coming about in other parts. Those of you that have interest in this is... I do, and many of us do, and by the way, uh, don't let the room explode, but many people are here as pleased as they can be that TCU won yesterday. <laughs> and congratulate them on a 13-win season. But the whole point is, and I'm from Los Angeles, and so I, but I'm serious about college football, especially with pastoring all my life. Uh, you know, Sunday's pretty well tied up, and I haven't been into the pros as much because... Uh, the whole day is shot to heaven. But, uh, <laughs> when, you come to, when you come to the concept of prophesying your own future, it's based on what the Bible teaches, and these words don't occur in the scripture, but it's the, the laws of reciprocity or reciprocal response. Given it shall be given unto you. Judge not, you won't be judged. To those who hear, more will be given. To those who don't hear, even what they've already begun to get, they'll begin to lose. It's the principles of life that rebound on you, and they can rebound with blessing and fruitfulness, or they can rebound with the, the opposite. In the words of Jesus, in just a package of about five verses in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, is one of the ones that you know in this congregation 
if you're an ongoing part of the church, probably better than a lot of people do, though it's one of the most quoted in the Bible. And you would be very aware of it because it probably as much as any single text beside John 3.16 and then other essence, essential verses concerning our coming into a walk with God, the principles within a walk with God, where given it shall be given unto you. I'm going to note two words that follow later in that verse, but precede it by where that passage begins about three or four verses before in the sixth chapter of Luke. Because it's there that the Bible says... Judge not, Jesus is the one who's doing the talking here, by the way. Red letter edition of the Bible, it's right there, bright and clear for you. And Jesus is saying, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you won't be condemned. He says, give, and it shall be given unto you. Laws of reciprocity. Then it goes on with that last verse and says, press down, shaken together, and overrunning, running over, will, listen to this please, because it's central to the point I'm making before I tell the story. Press down, shake it together, ring it over, shall men, or shall people, people around you, shall people heap into your bosom. Almost every translation uses the word bosom there, and it's talking about this, this part of our being. In other words, if something were to be given to you. The other day, Anna and I did some post-Christmas shopping. There's some really good sales on, and we were doing some shopping already for next Christmas. And I walked out of a store, and I had a group of boxes post-Christmas, not to mention going into Christmas. These things happen so much, of carrying sizable. There's, there was there in this circle of this area that is referred to as bosom in the Bible, I'm carrying these things that have been heaped on me as a result of Anna's and my shopping and carrying them out to the car. Shall people heap into your bosom, give, shall be given unto you. It's the concluding of those three, judge not, condemn not, then give. And that package probably centralizes the whole idea of the law of reciprocity as much as any, though it occurs in many regards to life, and in places where it doesn't say it so succinctly, it is nonetheless there. And that's why the, 160, the 119th Psalm says, great peace of those who love or they embrace or welcome into their heart what turns out to be a welcoming. They will not only not stumble, but there will be much that comes from the contacts of people around them that heap back toward them. In short, the Bible is very clear in saying, you relate to people in a way that is gracious, that is non-judgmental, get over the spirit of condemnation toward others, come to terms with letting the Holy Spirit show you where you have been embittered to the place that is just as your point of concern or irritation may be that anybody would say that's wrong. That the Lord is saying that while I loved and received you when you were way out of line, I'm calling you to learn, to learn that. Let me grow it in you. And it doesn't come easily. And how readily, even though we know the Lord and are seeking to pursue his way in our lives, how readily we can give place to it unintentionally is the story that I'm going to tell. 
But I want to first talk about this shall men heap into your bosom because it's a fascinating thing that the word that is in the New Testament, kolpos, is the Greek word that's translated bosom. And it occurs in most translations, but there's a few that it says it in different ways. And it's a, it's a difficult word because it describes a, something about our being that is encircled in this area that if you were in a seated position as you are right now, but leaning together to where your head and then chest and then came down to your lap, this curve would form, if you were to turn it sideways, kind of this shape, which occasions the use of the word in the 27th chapter of the book of Acts, translated a bay. It's talking about the passage where the apostle Paul is on a ship, there's a storm, and they, they put into, there's a, a bay, and they attempt to enter the bay after the storm is over. And I want to take just a minute of the topography of a, just there's the geology that forms a bay, because it's formed by streams that come down and erode sufficiently that it uh, just causes over long-term period of time occasions the formation of a bay where there had been water streaming through and then washing out the area in around where the streams came in and converged. Then it's into that that the tide comes. And the t this picture that is given helps us see, I think, of how God is saying, I want the way that you relate to become like a bay where something is shaped in you by the stream of my spirit flowing down like the mountainside that begins to wash out in you stuff that opens up an area in you where there can sweep in not just the goodness of God to you, but sweep in the favor of influence with people. And not because you're looking for what you can get out of them or what you can manipulate or what you can gain, but because there's something about you that becomes winsome, something about you that makes people trust you. The word is used, kolpas was a word that was used for people that were welcomed into the membership or environment of a culture they would not have been otherwise, except for whatever reason occasioned their being welcomed, which we would doubtless was a pretty positive reason. It's a word that's used, interestingly, for sitting at a place of honor at a, at a meal. It's a word that is used to, applied to uh, intimacy of trust between people. In other words, people begin to recognize you as somebody they can trust, somebody that they're happy to have in their circle of friends, somebody to whom they'd say, I, I like that person. And if it was, as it was used in those times, to be a member of a society or a club, They'd say, I would like them in an association I'm a part of. And it's something that happens attitudinally in people, not necessarily in a formal way other than a relational way. There's something about that that's seen so beautifully in Jesus. Everything about Jesus has this quality. Everything about Jesus. People came to him. And the people that were criticized, that Jesus was criticized because the religionists who missed the whole heart of God were looking at God incarnate in their midst and as people who didn't know the love of God and wanted it, saw in him something that drew them to him.
When the scripture says publicans and sinners came to him, it's talking about people that would have been deemed completely unworthy of anything by the religious culture in that particular community. Jesus had this quality. A witness for Christ really is this kind of person, and it's what opens the door. It's what provides the platform for you to be what we call a witness without it becoming something we suppose by waving flags or imposing scriptures or making people feel mildly guilty because of the way we comment on something as though there's a certain moral superiority on our part. That's something that will come through by a life that we live. And it's not being passive with our witness as though that's not important. But it's establishing the grounds for a witness to be presented because doors open. People say that's a kind of person that they'd finally come to say that if I thought of how Jesus must have been and they know anything about him at all, say that's one of them. People will heap into your bosom as a result of that attitude that is that non-judgmental attitude. And it'll bring a greatness expansiveness of, of the peace of God, not only in you, but what it breeds of contact with people. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the children of God, the scripture says. There's something about them that shows the reproduced image of the Lord in their life. Children of God and that something becomes winsome like Jesus draws people. Winsome is what I wanted to be toward Leo. Leo was Anna's brother, and we had gone back to visit her family for the first time. We'd only been married a matter of days. Let me tell you right now, young couples anticipating marriage don't plan on a honeymoon at the in-laws. Um, <laughs> We didn't really have trouble. It's just really not the way to have a honeymoon. And, uh, but we were kids in college. We were moving into our senior year of college and we got married that summer. And as we uh, went back to Nebraska, where I was from, we were in college in California. So we went back there uh, to, it was my meeting, her family for the first time took place at that time. We got married in California instead of her home because all of our friends were there, the college kids we wanted in the wedding. I was raised in Oakland, California. We went up there, got married. The kids were able to drive up. Wasn't that far. It worked better. Then we went immediately back to indicate to the rest of the family our respect, regard, and love for them. And that's how, when I met Leo. Anna's one of nine children. Leo is the one that's next older than her. He's the sixth in the family, and Anna's the seventh. That was the perfect one. <laughs> Number seven. And of the nine, uh, I was looking forward to meeting Leo because he would have been really the closest to my age of the guys. And uh, as I looked, looked forward to that, I was aware of what Anna had told me because when Leo came back from the military, he had stepped away from any real commitment of his life to Jesus Christ. Raised in the way of the Lord, walked very active as a believer, but things happened during the a period that he was away from home, that whatever it was when he came back, he was less than, not only just less than zealous, wasn't antagonistic, just distant from anything of a walk with God. And I realized that the last thing in the world that he was, uh, that he needed to see was a, a new brother-in-law who being a preacher of the gospel was coming with hot gospel to splatter it in his face. And uh, 
I wanted to just show him that I was ready to be a brother-in-law, just a friend. I understood that Leo really enjoyed bowling, and when I met him the first time, we talked a little bit, and I told him my own interest at that time in my life. Earlier, before I went to college, I'd bowled some and was reasonably good, and I said it would really be enjoyable to go out and bowl with you during these days that we are here. And I, that was the only real overture that I made beside just a little bit of a visit. He was courteous. But I recognized even then a little bit of a caution, which I understood to be because Jack is preparing for the ministry and he probably knows where I'm in my spiritual life and I'm not interested in going anywhere like that. Over a span of 20 years, with the occasional visits that we had back to Nebraska, every one of which I attempted to make some kind of uh, friendly approach to Leo, nothing happened. Not only did nothing happen, but you could feel the frostiness that there was. He was never impolite, never outright rejection. There was just a very cool distance that was there in the air. I don't even know to what degree he calculated it, but it certainly came through. I found myself coming to the place that I was increasingly bewildered. I couldn't just even find any of a willingness to establish friendship. I'd made it clear by this time being around enough that it wasn't anything I was trying to con him into a return to Christ or set him up in order that I could knock him down with the gospel. He knew all the gospel he needed anyway. What I was looking for was a chance to just verify I liked him. But the absence of response, while not an aggressive rejection, was something that was increasingly becoming to some degree frustrating to me, which I never did show on my face, always sought to be cordial just as he was cordial always had some kind of effort to what's a door you could knock on and possibly make contact and show him I just wanted to be a friend, but it never worked. Something happened on the last time we were there for Anna's folks' 50th wedding anniversary, and this is when it happened. We were out in the backyard of the folks' house and we were visiting, and I don't know what it was I said, but there came this thing. You could feel it. It it could be felt. Nothing that was said outright. Never impolite, never a verbal rejection, just, but you could feel that the wall was there again. And I thought this thought, and this is the thing that I don't like to admit, but it's, I wasn't aware of it to the degree of its impact at the time. I thought, you know, I'm through. I'm through with Leo. I was thinking I'm through trying. I'm not through with Leo. I'm through trying. But I'm, for all intents and purposes, I was through anything that I had to make any effort to care about Leo. And I didn't realize the degree to which that sunk in my spirit from that moment until six months later when I walked into the kitchen on Valentine's Sunday morning and reached over on the table. I was eating a bowl of cereal before I went over to church for the first service. And Sure, there was a valentine there, and I opened it because you could see it was a humorous card by the design on the front and the words. I looked to see what the punchline was, and I don't remember what the punchline was. The real punchline that came to me was in handwriting at the bottom from Leo's teenage daughter who would written a letter, both the girls were 13, to our teenage daughter, and wrote her and said this, Becky, 
I just wanted to say thank you in your last letter. The girls were pen pals. I wanted to thank you in your last letter, how you mentioned you're still praying every day for my daddy to come back to Jesus. It's emotional to me to tell that to this day. And what I'm describing you took place for me 30 years ago. And what happened in that moment is I, my knees went weak. I felt like, I suppose you would feel if you had a sort of ice go right through the center of your being. I went weak. And I, in fact, positioned myself. I didn't fall flat. I had a control, go to your knees, because I had to get down. But then I prostrated myself all the way down. Because I was blown away by the fact that it suddenly dawned on me that from the day I stood in the backyard and said, I'm through with Leo, to that day six months later, I had not prayed even for Leo one time. He had gone off my prayer list without my calculating, put him off your prayer list, because I would never have done that. There's something about attitude in us of people that we feel build walls against us or would. That even when we're at our best in our most sincere mode of wanting to be what we ought to be, we get in our own way. Probably a classic case, loved ones, is the whole Christian, not the whole, much of the Christian community in our own land has become oftentimes so offended by things that are represented in government, in leaders, in a community, in circumstances of moral stances that are in the culture, that in our unwillingness to accept the mores that are being washed away that violate human sanity and health and well-being for people, that it comes across so often to culture and breeds something in us as more than just a position we've taken, but an attitude that may go often deeper, that builds a wall against the tide of public opinion recognizing there is an openness to it because there's a bay of generosity where the word has streamed down from the mountain of God through his word and fixed an openness in our hearts when Jesus says, judge not and you won't be judged. Don't condemn and you won't be condemned. Let me give you an example of condemning. I'm through with that. I'm through with Leo. Is that what you meant to do, Jack? No. But I repented that day. I cried. I went to church that day, a better pastor, a better believer, a better guy in terms of God's purpose for me. I don't know how it played into it, but I know this. Six months later, after Leo had been away from the Lord for about 25 years now, we came home from a Sunday night service. Anna went in the kitchen to get a snack for the kids, and I was in the... Uh, I'd gone in to take a shower because it was a hot July night and I'd ministered that night and I was uh, perspiring and I went in the shower and I had put my bed clothes on. I was just sitting there putting my slippers on on the side of the bed. It's such a clear memory. And the phone rang right there beside the bed and I picked it up and Anna picked it up in the kitchen at the same time and said, hello. We said it simultaneously, precisely. And the voice on the other end said, hi guys, this is Leo. And there was a different sound to his voice. And he said, listen, he said, I just wanted to call you guys tonight 
to tell you that tonight I went to church and I came back to the Lord Jesus and have returned to him. And I was, we both rejoiced and, and, and we talked for a few minutes and it wasn't a long conversation, but it was a happy and a rejoicing and praise filled one. And it happened, I hung the phone up and I laid back down on the pillow. I laid on the pillow, turned around and just, and, and wept for a minute or two, not profusely, but just tears coming down. But while I was weeping with gratitude, the thought entered my mind, Lord, I don't know and it doesn't make any difference now, but I don't know to what degree for all those years that there may have been something in me that blocked. I don't know. You say, don't put that on me, Jack. I'm not putting it on you anymore than I'm putting it on me. I'm only saying this, that Jesus says himself that there is something that will block the release of that circle of your welcome in people's attitude toward you. The tide of openness toward you because you were open toward it. The bay, the bosom. I, people, men will press into your bosom. People will move into relational association with you at a dimension of trust and openness as a result of something that is non-judgmental, non-condemning. And we are so vulnerable to that dominating little unrecognized parts of our life and sometimes justifying it because of what has been done, acted out, or is going on around us. And what Jesus is saying to us is not that the values for which any of us would stand or the gospel we want to communicate are the, the values are wrong or the gospel ought not be spoken. He's saying that what is going to make it work is the way you stance yourself toward society, toward people, toward your neighbor, toward members of your own family. And when that takes place, he says, the tide's going to start coming in. And loved ones, that is the tide of influence, of trust, and of welcome. And it's what I ask God to grant all of you. Great peace, health, welcome, trust. Have those who let this book, this word, rule in their lives so their ear becomes tuned to the Holy Spirit when he finally gets through as he did to me. Too many years later, but after points of internal aggravation that I won't attempt to justify. God bless you with a new year of influence. God bless you with what becomes more winsome openness and winning for the glory of Jesus Christ because it will draw people to you and thereby to him. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, work these things in us and launch any point right now where there's been blindness in any way. In your holy name we pray. Amen.